Several weeks ago now, our pastor embarked on an ambitious target to read through the whole of Mark before Easter. And he's done that very, very well. I'm going to read Mark chapter 11, and then our pastor is going to read the 12th chapter and then share some thoughts on those chapters with us. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, hev highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fault. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." They arrived again in Jerusalem. 
And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And when the chief, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. Integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? 
When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked them, why did the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So let's pray. Father God, we ask you please speak to us this morning uh, through your word. We want to see Jesus, see Jesus as he is and learn from him. We want to be disciples. And do what disciples do. Help us hear you, hear Jesus' words. And see him. See him with the eyes of our heart and be moved. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Where do you go to meet with the Lord? When you want to meet with the Lord, where do you go? Go to church? Go to a meeting of God's people? Or do you go to a solitary place? Or do you go to a trysting place? By that, as a word I came across some, some years ago. Um, some people, there's sometimes you've met God in a particular place and it just holds a, a, a place in your heart. I go back to Holy Island every so often um, in Northumbria. Um, I met God in a, in a very incredible way there on, on one occasion and I go back. Um, the place has no spiritual power. It's just a, 
It's just a reminder. Well, I don't know, where do you go to meet with the Lord? Well, the essential place that you meet with the Lord is in Christ. In Christ. He is, as we'll see in a moment or two, the replacement for the temple. And so all other places are useful but secondary. Some of them we're commanded to do. We're told to meet with God's people, not give up meeting together. We're told to go and pray to our Father in secret in the Lord's Prayer or in the context of the Lord's Prayer. So those other places are useful and some of them are commanded, but all of them are useless unless you are in Christ. Unless you are in Christ. So let's pick up the story. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. We're just going to look at uh, this first part of Mark 11 today. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, but before he crests the Mount of Olives to see the city all spread out uh, below him, he sends two disciples to procure a colt. Matthew tells us it was a little donkey. Colt could have been a little horse, but as you saw uh, in the video, it's a little donkey. And Jesus either has human foreknowledge of how to get the donkey, or he has divine foreknowledge. I think he has at least some of the latter. But either way... Um, commandeering a beast of burden was a king's prerogative. And importantly, it fulfills the messianic prophecy uh, of Zechariah 19. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, um, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. But either way, we see Jesus in total control of the situation. As he comes to Jerusalem, there's, um, there's a crowd before him and a crowd behind him. In John, that becomes a bit clearer. There's a crowd following him as he comes into Jerusalem and there's a crowd that comes out of Jerusalem um, to meet him. And they are rejoicing and they are, uh, they are shouting these words. They're shouting, Hosanna, which was a word which meant, please save, Lord, but it had sort of become a, a, a shout of praise. They shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's clearly taken from Psalm 118, which Rob helpfully read for us earlier on. And it was a blessing you could use to any pilgrim who was coming up to the temple. But when you put it in context of Psalm 118, it's hard not to see it as a, uh, as a messianic greeting, a greeting of the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That doesn't come from anywhere in scripture, nor is it something of Jesus' own words. It's something I think somebody in the crowd has coined. That doesn't matter. And the gospels are all slightly different um, when, the, when they record uh, what those words were. And that's not surprising, because if you imagine... Um, Mark, as we said before, is writing um, Peter's account down. Um, John was there. Matthew is there. They'll remember different things um, that were shouted. But knowingly or unknowingly, the crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with, with messianic words, with words appropriate um, to God's anointed king um, coming to rule and to reign. And so it seems like this should be the moment where Jesus, uh, Jesus is accepted by the crowds, uh, welcomed into Jerusalem, and, uh, and comes and takes his reign. And what happens? 
Well, in, in Mark's gospel, nothing very much. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. It's a word that means he had a really good look at things. But since he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's a strange anticlimax in Mark. He comes in with, with, all this, uh, with all this shouts and noise and crowds and then nothing. Walks into the temple, has a good look around. Where have the crowds gone? Mark is, is warning us against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. And he's setting up the real point of these events as he sees them. And as it turns out, it's only a couple of little words, but Jesus has seen enough. So they, they go back home. So the next day, as they're traveling in from Bethany, Jesus sees this fig tree in leaf, and he goes looking for figs. He goes to it, he finds there's no fruit, and then we have this comment from Mark, it was not the season for figs. So it leaves many people scratching their heads. Jesus is going to a fig tree and he's condemning it, even though it wasn't the season for figs. What on earth is going on? Well, the answer is that there should have been some fruit on the tree. Um, and a fig tree, uh, it's overwintered. By the time it's overwintered, it starts to have some little um, immature fruit on the tree. And then the leaves come. And by the time the leaves come, the, the, fruit should be, the fruit should be more mature and ready to eat. But even the immature fruit, um, you, you could eat. But either way, what happened was the fruit came before the leaves. I think that's the important thing to remember. So by the time Jesus comes to this tree, it's maybe got a load of leaves out of season. It's a bit of an odd tree. But because it's got leaves, there should be fruit. But there aren't any. It's a deceptive tree. It promises fruit from afar, but there is none. And the meaning of this we find in the middle. Mark's made another sandwich for us. Okay, he talks about the tree, talks about the temple, talks about the tree. And so we know from the, from the sandwich structure, the ABA structure, that the thing in the middle is the point. And the thing in the middle is the temple. And so the fig tree is a picture of Israel and her temple-based worship. It is all outward show and no spiritual fruit. It is all outward show and no spiritual fruit. It's reminiscent of an earlier condemnation of Israel. Back in the time of Hosea, God says that when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So quite often in the Old Testament, the fig trees <clears throat> in fruit is a sign of blessings to Israel. And sometimes Israel is pictured as a fig tree itself. So this, the only miracle of destruction that Jesus does, is a picture of the temple worship. Jesus has looked. You remember he came in the evening before and looked, and there is no fruit. And so he condemns 
the fig tree, and by implication, the temple to everlasting fruitlessness. So, when Jesus gets to the temple and goes in, there's loads of activity, loads of leaves rustling, as it were. The temple courts were like a bazaar. There was a specific currency. It was the tire shekel that was used to pay the temple tax because it was the nearest thing um, you could get to the, to the Hebrew shekel in those days. So, the, But there wasn't a, uh, a coinage that the people usually had, so they had to go in uh, and and go to the exchange booth before they could even pay their temple tax. As you can imagine, there was a cut to be made there somewhere, I would imagine. They also had to buy the lamb, or at least this was the way it was working at the time, or the animal that they were going to sacrifice. If you were coming from a distance, you didn't want to be tagging along um, your lamb um, because it might get ill on the way or it might have an accident and then you've brought it all the way in and it's no longer an acceptable sacrifice. Easier just to bring some money uh, when you get into the temple courts, um, buy an animal that was kind of like, you know, I guess there were all these placards up, guaranteed perfect animals, buy your guaranteed perfect animals, um, and you paid your money, and, and it was acceptable. So there was plenty of opportunities for good business. Plenty of funding, financial gain, to be made by the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is outraged. It overturns their, their stalls and their benches. Probably not all of them, because there were a lot of them there. Certainly in AD 66, by the time the, the temple had been completed, one Passover, there were over a quarter of a million animals sacrificed. So probably not all of them. But the Jews of this day, they're expecting a Messiah who's going to come and, and, and purge Jerusalem um, and the temple of the Gentiles. We've said that before. And Jesus comes in and says the opposite. God's house should be a house of prayer for all nations. It is quoting Isaiah. So God had said this to the people through Isaiah centuries before. The temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And instead, it's become a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. And I guess whenever you find an Old Testament reference in the New Testament, it's worth going back and reading it in context. Because the writer is thinking not just of the verse, but he's thinking of the context. And um, the Lord had said to the people, again, centuries before, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which bears my name, and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, says the Lord. All of that, by implication, is what the Lord is saying to Israel at that time. So unsurprisingly, the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law start looking for a way to kill Jesus. And uh, in contrast, the crowd are amazed at his teaching, which is the way they've responded since chapter 1 and chapter 2. But when evening comes uh, and Jesus and the disciples um, go out of the city, it's the next slide, and they see the fig tree withered from, withered from the roots. And the disciples are amazed because it's like the stilling of the storm. Um, 
Jesus said to the storm, be still, and the waves settled down. If there'd been a storm, it took time for the waves to settle down. Jesus said to the fig tree, never bear fruit again, and is withered from roots up. Better than the best systemic weed killer could do. You know how that works. You spray it on the top and it goes down to the roots and it kills the thing from the roots up. But even that takes a few days. But Jesus cursed it. Um, from between morning and evening, it has withered from the roots. And just, I guess, to confirm, the temple worship is dead. It is fruitless. It is over now that Jesus has come. And Jesus tells them in their amazement, they're amazed this has happened. Jesus tells them essentially that they have access to prayer which accesses the same power of God that they have seen at work. Peter says, look, the fig tree's withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. If anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. So Jesus tells them two, two keys for, for prayer. And even though I think the comment about the mountain is hyperbole, in other words, um, deliberate overstatement, I think and he talks about this mountain primarily because he's talking about Jerusalem. And actually this mountain is about to be overthrown. But his prescription nevertheless is when you pray, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And that has had many Christians tying themselves in knots. And it's had many Christians doing some very strange things. Um, because... People have taken it, say, I, I ask for something, then I believe that I've received it, and then it, then it happens. And it leads to a denial of reality. <clears throat> we have to tread carefully here. I don't want to deny the, the power that Jesus offers in prayer. Because people have sometimes said... <clears throat> Something like, Lord, I want to be, I want to be healed of my, I want to be healed of my short sight. Um, and okay, what do I do to believe I've received it? I'm going to walk around now without my glasses. Um, and to be honest, I wouldn't get very far. Um, but I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. Still hasn't happened, but I'm going to believe that it's happened. Um, and then I bump into the door. Um, and there comes a point where I put my glasses back on and carry on with life, just a little more disappointed than I was before. Yes, yes, Christians do actually do things along those lines. So how are we to take this? I think, it's, I think it, this is the way to take it. I think it is if, when you pray, you really believe that it will happen. It will happen. See how that's kind of subtly different? It brings the, the believing that it's happened not, not after the prayer, but at the time of the prayer. If, when you pray, you really believe it's going to happen, your prayer will be answered. And I wonder whether you've ever experienced that. 
whether you've experienced that kind of blessed moment where you pray something and you just have that sense in your spirit, gosh, yes, that is a prayer um, that God wanted me to pray. Yes, I have a, a sense that that is a prayer um, that's gone to the throne. And you have the blessing of seeing that answer. Do you ever have that sense? See, Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So when you come to God in, in prayer, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith that God exists. That's a basic uh, prerequisite. You must believe that he is a God who rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hear that. God is good to, to those who are, who are seeking him. But John says this, and I think this is, is a helpful comparison. Dear friends, if our hearts do not contemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So I get put these all together. If you're in that sweet spot of the Christian life, which none of us seem to stay in for very long, but you're keeping God's commands out of joy, uh, and you're pleasing him, um, and you know you're right with God, and your heart is not condemning you, and you are uh, trusting God that he exists, and you know that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, um, and, and you come before him, and in that moment you have faith, and sometimes I think God has to give us that faith um, for that particular prayer. Then that prayer gets answered. But there's one more thing. You need to have forgiveness too. Interestingly, Jesus throws that in at the end, like it is in the Lord's Prayer. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. When you forgive, it opens the door for you to experience God's forgiveness. So, over the next few days, um, what happens uh, for Jesus? He's repeatedly challenged by the Jewish leaders, but he confounds, confounds and challenges them in return. We're not going to spend time on this. Um, they come and ask for his credentials, his authority, and he bamboozles them by talking about John the Baptist's authority. He tells the parable of the evil, te uh, evil tenants, and they know that he's spoken against them and look for a way to arrest him. There's a to and fro. Um, they said the Pharisees with the poll tax question, and Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, a genius answer. Then they sent some uh, Sadducees with a, a resurrection teaser, um, but Jesus says, when the dead rise, they, they won't marry or be given in marriage. One teacher in all this um, comes close. To love him with all your heart, all your understanding, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus teaches them a couple of little things. This thing about being David's son and David's Lord. You have to work out that teaser for yourself. He warns them again against the teachers of the law. And then deliberately he sits down and watches them putting their offerings in. And all these rich people putting their stuff in. And the widow comes along. Widows, uh, the most deprived, defenseless and vulnerable of people. And she puts in two copper coins, which is all she has. It is all, everything that she has. 
All she had to live on. That's remarkable. She realizes that she has to throw in her life with God if she wants to really know him. And she recognizes that that to live, the more important thing she needs for her life is her heavenly father than her earthly finances. So what are the lessons for, for disciples out of all of this? Okay. <laughs> First one is this. The temple is gone. Temple worship has gone as a way to access God and it has been replaced by Jesus and access to the Lord is in and through Christ only. And Jesus invites people of all nations, Jews, Gentiles, all of, equally to come um, and to know God through him. This is the great news of the gospel. When you come to Christ, you can be forgiven from everything you've ever done. Put right with God, you trust him on the cross. He comes, uh, sends his Holy Spirit to live in you. You make him Lord. And when you do that, you have access to the real temple, the very throne room of God in heaven, and you have access in Christ. Outside of Christ, you you don't have that. In Christ, you have that, and it is all you need. So, once you're a disciple of Jesus, you are always in the temple. You are always in the temple, so you can pray anywhere. This is an amazing privilege, people. And you should pray in faith and with forgiveness. You have a profound, free access to the throne room of God. You can be forgiven anywhere, um, at any moment. When you've trusted Christ just by coming back to God and saying, I've done this, I've done this again, and I'm sorry, and please forgive me. You always are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're, if you're in Christ. He sent you his Holy Spirit. You can bring ministry anywhere. You can bring the presence of God anywhere and everywhere. And then when we meet, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. For where two or three gather in my name, Jesus said, there am I with them. Let's put it like this. In the past, you used to take your car um, to the garage for an MOT. Okay. But now, you have a miraculous MOT tester with his um, portable garage living in the back of your car. Or rather than going to book a counsellor and see them in their rooms, a wonderful counsellor travels with you, walks with you, stands next to you at home, at school, um, in the office, um, wherever you go. Or rather than going up to Buckingham Palace to see the Queen. Okay, um, the Queen lives in your house. She goes to work with you. Uh, She sits there in the corner of your bedroom when you go to sleep and has breakfast with you in the morning. 
So why then would you go back to the garage to get an MOT when you have the portable MOT man with you? You say, we love Halfords. It has good memories for you. It's redundant. Wherever you go is Halfords. Other garages are available. Because Halfords is always with you. Why go up to Buckingham Palace to see the Queen? We love that building. It has a sense of grandeur. But the monarch is, is already with you. Wherever you go. So let's be clear. No buildings carry any spiritual power. They carry practical significance, yes. Need somewhere to meet together. And in that sense, they work better or worse, depending on what they are. Yes, they have sentimental significance. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense. They're associated with our, with our memories, but no building has any spiritual power to bring you closer or further away from God. And we have to say the parts of the church of um, some churches have recreated aspects of the temple. Some have an altar at the front. Why? Why? Jesus Christ has been sacrificed for you once for all on the cross to bring you to God. A communion table is enough. Why would you have an altar? I feel that's almost blasphemous. Some churches have people in robes. Why? Jesus is your great high priest. He is your priest. We're all here as equals. Some churches have a, a holy place within a holy place. So, particularly in a cathedral. Sometimes in a cathedral, um, from the cheap seats, you, you can't see, you can't see the, uh, the, the priest and the choir and all the rest. They have a kind of holy of holies. Why? You have access through Christ to heaven itself. You have access into the holy of holies, the real holy of holies. So you have the real priest, you have the real sacrifice, and you have access through into the real holy of holies. Why would you go back to the temple? <coughs> temple worship is a withered tree, and you have this glorious access to the holy of holies, to the throne room of God in Christ. So where do you go to meet with the Lord? The temple is Jesus. Jesus is the replacement of the temple. So you have to come in Christ. And then the Bible says you should uh, meet with God in secret at home. It says you should meet together in fellowship. And you should meet in and around God's word. Accessing the throne of grace through Jesus. Our sacrifice, our priest and so as Hebrews says since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, because we don't have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for us, for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And that's not a metaphor. That's a reality. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we can shout on this Palm Sunday. I think it's worth, maybe you read Psalm 118 this afternoon if you get the chance. Um, The psalmist says, open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter, Jesus Christ. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected, that is Jesus, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice together and be glad. Lord, save us. That sounds like Hosanna to me. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Jesus. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord, the Lord Jesus is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, joining the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. We don't have to, you don't have to cut anything off the tree, okay, to pray. And you, you don't have to um, go up to the altar. We, we just come um, with hearts uh, lifted up um, together. Uh, the horns of the altar is Christ. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever.